Okay, well, this is the second week that we're going to be addressing this question of what kind of government should we as Christians want? Uh, before that, we, we thought for a few weeks about, well, how should we respond to the government? Like, when do we obey? When might we disobey? Um, but now we're thinking about what, what kind of government should we want anyway? Um, now, as I said last week, because of time, uh, this is going to be at a fairly high level. There's far more things we won't have time to get into than we will. Um, and also, the goal here is not really to try to spell out specific policies and say, oh, this is the exact kind of government, the policies we should have, but, but more to think, what are some broad guiding principles or, uh, that could help form a framework for thinking about this question? Uh, last week, I, I introduced sort of two uh, of these broad principles. The, the first is, and, and you can follow along, there should be some notes on the back of the prayer sheet there. The first is that the only perfect government is an absolute monarchy under Christ. Uh, I think it's important that we keep that clearly in our minds, that we shouldn't be looking for some perfect, you know, perfectly stable, enduring, earthly government that's just going to make everything great. No, the reality is there's an inherently unstable tension between the fact that there is a king of kings who has already been exalted to the right hand of God, and there are many, probably a majority of people and kings that don't even acknowledge him. Um, And in fact, our mission is to shine as lights in the midst of a very dark, fallen world and to be striving to make disciples, even though so many people reject Christ. So um, when we think about what kind of government should we want, well, ultimately it's for Christ to come back. It's for his kingdom. Uh, And in the here and now, in the meantime, uh, even the best earthly government is provisional and temporary. You know, it's, it's sort of getting us by in this awkward overlap of the ages where there is a king and yet he's not fully acknowledged as he should be. Now, a second principle that I shared last week was uh, we should want the government to fulfill the role given to it by God in Scripture. Uh, on one level, that, that should be very obvious and sort of simple, but it's good to acknowledge that. Like, that's really what we should want the government to do. And then, of course, the question is, well, what role does God give the state in the Bible? And as I've said earlier on, I I don't think the Bible lays out the exact role of the government in exhaustive detail. Um, But at least two key pieces of what that role would be based on the New Testament, would be, number one, to punish evil and praise good. We see that in Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2. And number two, to allow us to live quiet, peaceful lives in all godliness and dignity. We're supposed to pray for governing authorities that that's what we would be able to do. So I think if we kind of hold those in the forefront of our minds, of, well, that's the kind of thing that we should want the government to be promoting and enabling. Uh, so that means things like, having police and a court system and a criminal justice system to prevent people from harming others. Uh, That's how the government would punish evil. Um, I think probably by extension, having a military for the protection of the nation and its citizens. Um, Also, I think this would imply that the government uh, has a role in managing and regulating all sorts of things that would help promote an economically stable society where human beings can live and flourish. Um, you know, the government helps, should, should take some responsibility for things like seeing that there's roads and bridges and 
that those that are built are safe. Um, you know, we, we need regulations to limit pollution and deforestation. Right? We should want good stewardship of God's creation. Um, and, and to prevent things like huge corporations from just monopolizing things and then jacking the prices way up. I mean, there, there's a role for government regulation there. Uh, some sorts of zoning and management in cities. You really can't have a city if there's not some amount of, you know, understanding who can do what where so we can live together well. Um, so the list could go on and on of sort of things that the government might do. Uh, but as we noted last time, uh, one of the things that, that I've argued that the role of the state doesn't involve, even, even though they're supposed to punish evil and praise good, well, that doesn't seem to entail punishing idolatry and enforcing Christianity. Uh, and, and that would be a key difference from Israel. Uh, you know, we, we do see God instituting that within Israel, and, then, and yet um, I would argue that under in the New Testament, where we see the role of the state, uh, it's not supposed to try to enforce Christianity. And that brings us to a third principle that's going to kind of make this more explicit, uh, which would be the, the principle of the separation of church and state. I think we as Christians should be proponents of that. Um, undergirding this biblically uh, would be the idea that Christ has given the power of the keys to the church and the sword to the state. Uh, so in Matthew chapter 16 and 18, uh, Jesus makes reference to the keys of the kingdom. And he says he gives to Peter and I think it's Matthew 18 makes clear to the church. Um, and, and connected with the keys is the authority to bind and loose. Um, and so the, the keys seem to represent the authority to build the church by preaching the gospel and then making judgments about who's part of the church and who's not. Right? We have this authority to say this is someone who's confessing the truth about Christ and living as Jesus' disciple, and this is someone who's not. Matthew 18, let them be to you as a heathen or a tax collector, for whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So the keys represent a declarative spiritual authority. Uh, we as a church don't have the authority to coerce people. We can't make them follow Christ. Um, but we do have this authority to speak on behalf of heaven, to proclaim the truth about Christ and then render a judgment, is this person following Christ or not? The sword, on the other hand, uh, in Romans 13, remember Paul speaks of the state not bearing the sword in vain, that God has given them this authority, the sword. Well, that's a coercive authority. Uh, the, the state has the authority to make people do things and then punish them if they don't. So there's two kinds of authority for these two different institutions. And when I say that church and state should be separate, uh, I mean that the church and state both need to recognize and respect the unique kind of authority God has given to the other. Uh, so the state shouldn't be imprisoning people for heresy because it doesn't have the keys. And the church shouldn't be executing people because it doesn't have the sword. Right? It's, it's a different kind and sphere of authority for these different institutions. Um, historically, 
uh, this is an issue that I think especially came to the fore and had to be wrestled with uh, in the 17th century in England. Um, Thomas Helwes was an early Baptist advocate for the separation of church and state. Um, A couple quotes from him. He said, men's religion to God is between God and themselves. The king shall not answer for it. The king doesn't have to give an account to God for why he lets somebody, you know, believe different things about God. He's saying that's not the king's responsibility. Then he says, let them be heretics, Turks, that is Muslims, Jews, or whatever. It appertains not to the earthly power to punish them in the least measure. Now, to many of us, I mean, this is something, I mean, Keith said in his sermon, I said earlier in this series, and this may sound fairly normal, but those views were unpopular and considered dangerous enough to land him in prison in 1612, where he died four years later. Um, so so that, that was not the prevailing view. That was uh, very different. Um, then later that century, so in the 1640s and 50s, is when the Westminster Assembly met. Um, King Charles I was executed in 1649, so during that period. That was you know, a huge thing. And uh, then Oliver Cromwell was named uh, the Lord Protector from 1653 to 1658. Uh, and Cromwell himself was actually on the minority uh, compared to most of those in the Westminster Assembly who were more Presbyterian. Cromwell was a Congregationalist, and he advocated significantly more religious toleration. So while he was there, there, there was kind of some laws, but they weren't all enforced, and people were much freer to, to do as they pleased. But I want to read to you from the original Westminster Confession. Uh, this is chapter 23, on, and it's titled, Of the Civil Magistrate. And, and just think about how they're relating church and state here. It says, The civil magistrate may not assume to himself the administration of the word and sacraments or the power of the keys of the kingdom of heaven. So they're, they're saying, okay, he, he shouldn't take the keys of the kingdom. Yet, he hath authority, and it is his duty to take order that unity and peace be preserved in the church, that the truth of God be kept pure and entire, that all blasphemies and heresies be suppressed, all corruptions and abuses in worship and discipline prevented or reformed, and all the ordinances of God duly settled, administered, and observed. For the better effecting whereof he hath power to call synods, to be present at them, and to provide that whatsoever is transacted in them be according to the mind of God. So, I mean, you think about the, the degree of sort of authority that they're giving him in sort of spiritual matters, things pertaining to doctrine and the life of the church. It's, it's quite significant. I would argue that while they're saying, well, he doesn't have the keys of the kingdom, they're, they're sort of functionally giving the civil magistrate, the um, civil authority, a lot of control of the keys. Um, now, after Charles II takes the throne in 1660, so after the period under Cromwell, um, well, he doesn't do what the, the Presbyterians were hoping. Um, and the, the Puritans sort of quickly fall out of favor. He, he issues something called the Act of Uniformity in 1662. So 
I think it was a couple thousand Puritan ministers wind up resigning. Um, and, you know, it becomes a period where there's a lot of persecution. Um, this is also a time when guys like John Bunyan, so he's a Baptist, but uh, he's there preaching. Uh, Bunyan winds up being imprisoned for the crime of preaching without a license. Uh, it's in prison that he, he writes Pilgrim's Progress. Um, and, you know, th- this whole experience is one of the things that's, that's really forcing people to start thinking more about this relationship between church and state. Uh, significantly, in 1689, the London Baptist Confession is written, which mirrors the, the Westminster Confession very closely. Um, but when they get to the third paragraph of the section of the civil magistrate, um, they do not include that paragraph that I just read. Um, they're, they're clearly not in agreement that that's the way, the kind of authority that the civil magistrate has. Um, also, late in the 1700s, uh, the American Presbyterian Church revises that paragraph that I read as well, um, quite significantly, to, to kind of take away some of that authority. Um, so I think the moral for us is, as we you know, just briefly think about this question of separation of church and state is, you know, it can seem appealing to want the government to back us up with the power of the sword. You know, think, well, if the government's going to come and, you know, the, the church is going to give this decision with the keys, wouldn't it be good if the, if the state was sort of behind that? Um, yeah, I, you can see how that would be appealing. And I think, well, isn't that promoting good if they're promoting true doctrine? The problem is it's a two-edged sword. You give them that power, and it can easily come back against us. Um, and I, I, so I think Helwes had it right. Let them be heretics, Muslims, Jews, or whatsoever. It appertains not to the earthly power to punish them in the least measure. I think that's the, the kind of government we, we should want. Now, that brings us to a, a fourth uh, principle, which is sort of the other side of this. The separation of church and state doesn't mean the separation of theology from politics. Okay, so for one, obviously, Jesus is Lord of all. That includes the political realm. So separation of church and state is not saying that somehow the state is separate from Jesus' authority. Uh, The state is still accountable to Jesus. Also, it's saying that an institutional separation of church and state doesn't mean that there should be an ideological separation between theology and politics for us. Um, Sometimes you'll hear people say things like, don't try to tell me abortion should be illegal because people are made in the image of God. That's a religious argument, and it doesn't have any place in the political realm. But of course, the reality is every political argument ultimately comes back to some sort of religious or worldview convictions. And so really what's going on there, you know, to say that, that separation of church and state means we can't appeal to theological truth in political arguments is really just a sneaky way of privileging and presupposing an atheistic, materialistic worldview. You know, of course, that worldview does not lead to righteousness. Um, So we should absolutely let theological, biblical conviction drive the way we vote, 
drive the way we think about politics and political parties and all of that. You know, do not think I have to put this on the shelf when I step into a political realm. Um, Now, of course, sometimes, you know, from the perspective of trying to persuade non-Christians to agree with whatever policy we're promoting, uh, you know, that may mean in addition to some biblical argument, we're going to need to appeal to some other things. You know, they might not be persuaded to vote against abor- or to vote against abortion because the Bible says we're created in the image of God. But we could, you know, you can bring scientific arguments, sociological arguments. There's other things you could sort of marshal in support of that. There's, that's certainly um, a good thing to do. But again, as we think about what are we going to vote for, how are we going to think politically, uh, there is not this separation of theology from politics. They're, they're integrally linked. Um, and so in the, the little bit of time we have left, I want us just to take a couple minutes to try, try to be a little bit practical and, and think about, well, what would be some biblical principles that will necessarily affect the way we think about political policies? And just to get us started, I'll, I'll, I'll give an obvious one, which would be the sanctity of all human life. Of course, we've thought about that with regard to abortion. Um, but what about things like, you know, in, in European countries today, we're, we're seeing things like assisted suicide. is becoming increasingly, you know, promoted. Um, historically, we can look back at things like the eugenics movement, slavery. Um, you know, we as Christians should see all human life as equally holy and valuable, no matter how old, how young, how disabled you are, what your skin color is, like, we're all created in the image of God. Um, our value comes from that and not what we can contribute. So, so that's going to have radical implications for what policies we would vote for. What are some other things that, that you all can think of? Some biblical principles that... Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, and I, and I think in some ways that's going to come back to what we were talking about before of how do we respond to the government. So, so if I'm in control and I can kind of influence, well, yeah, I think separation of church and state is good. There's going to be times where maybe that separation isn't the way I think it should be. And then we've got to figure out how do we honor God in the midst of that, which doesn't mean, oh, the government is just, you know, has no authority at all. I can just write them off. But on the other hand, as we thought about some of these exceptions, there's time to say, yeah, but you don't have the authority to limit our ability to worship Jesus. And so we don't have to submit to you if you're uh, interfering with what God has commanded us to do. So I think that's sort of how you'd have to wrestle through it. Good question. Yeah, Matt? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's, I mean, there's, there's so much you could get into on 
how we wrestle through we're responding to the laws as they are and then what kind of laws we want to see promoted, what kinds of things we want to see taught in schools, um, you know, the way that has kind of been taken to say we're going to try to teach children this. I mean, I think we should have a voice there of wanting to protect kids. Yeah, I think that's a huge one. Um, and, and I think that one is really helpful. Oh, she, uh, sorry, she said uh, caring for the poor, the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow. Uh, I mean, those are things we as Christians need to care about. It's also a good example to, to I think, illustrate a principle that, you know, th- there's, there's the desire to do that, and then there's the question, what policy will best accomplish that? You know, so, so we can wrestle through, what, what do we think of welfare? And, you know, I, probably some of this room will say, well, I think the state should stay out of that so that, you know, and churches should do more. Um, maybe others are thinking, well, I think there's ways that that could be sort of revised to limit, you know, this tendency for there to become a dependence that's not healthy. And, you know, we can have all those conversations. Um, and yet at the same time, I think it's so important that at the end of the day, we care about the poor. We care about the fatherless, the widow, the sojourner. Um, and so, yeah, there, there needs to be a healthy, you know, don't jump to the conclusion, someone who's against welfare, well, you just don't care about the poor. Maybe they really do, and they just have a different way of wanting to see that work out. Um, but at the same time, I hope we don't oppose well the idea of welfare because we just care about keeping more money for ourselves and not having to give as much Taxes. I hope there's, you know, we have that genuine concern. And that should very much be reflected in us. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't I don't know that I have the decisive answer. I, I think in some sense it starts to illustrate the the tension I was talking about before of like there's no perfectly stable solution. Like when you have people who just have diametrically opposed worldviews, like how do you all agree? Now I would hope it, you know, on one level it's like I, I would think a school could teach children you should love your neighbors yourself. Like that's generally something that 
you know, even people who are not Christian would see as a good value. And we could all agree, like, that's good to instill in our five-year-olds. Um, but at the same time, yeah, they're, they're, you're right. There, there is an assumed value system behind anything um, that somewhere down the line is going to start to have tensions. And I think that's part of the awkward tension we're inevitably living in in this present world. Keith? So we could, we could continue enumerating principles like this. Um, obviously, we, we don't have the time to flesh all of this out. Um, but, but I hope it just helps illustrate this point. These are the kinds of things that we, we should be wrestling with, thinking about. How do I go from biblical principle and think carefully about political policy, while at the same time knowing you know, some of those issues are very straight line, you know, like abortion, God says don't kill, abortion is murder, like that's wrong. Others, okay, we want to help the poor. We want to see children educated well. Well, what mix of policies is going to actually help that happen in our society? And, and there, there's a lot more jumps we have to make. And so we need to be, I think, humble and listen to one another and try to have good, healthy conversation. So, so to sum this question up, what, what kind of government should we as Christians want uh, well, again, I think going back to First uh, Timothy chapter 2, it's one that enables us to live quiet, peaceable lives in all godliness and dignity. It's not a Christian government that tries to instill Christianity, because that's the work of the church, but a government that enforces a basic standard of morality so that people can't oppress and victimize others, a government that allows society to function in a stable way so that people's basic needs can be met, uh, and, and so that we as Christians actually have a stable platform on which to go about carrying on the work of the church. Um, and, and I think we can desire a government with leaders who, who fear God and submit to the authority of Christ themselves. We, we can pray for that, desire that. Um, but whatever the case may be, in the end, uh, we should know that there is no perfect solution for this fallen world um, where so many don't even recognize Christ. At best, human governments are provisional and temporary, but we can look forward to the perfect and eternal kingdom of Christ Jesus our Lord and his return. So that's the government we should desire most of all. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for this time to discuss these things together uh, as a church family. We, we pray that you would give us wisdom uh, to think about them well. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.